Today, I'm speaking with Jim Savage, the Director of Data Science at Schmidt Futures. Jim and I talk about what data science is and is not capable of, what can actually deliver value, and what people really enjoy doing. The intersection in this Venn diagram is where we need to focus our attention, and it may not quite be what you think it is. We then dive into Jim's thoughts on what he dubs executive data science. You may be aware of the slicing of the data science and machine learning spaces into descriptive analytics, predictive analytics, and prescriptive analytics. But being the thought surgeon that he is, Jim proposes a different slicing into one, tool building or data science as a product, two, tools to automate and augment parts of us, and three, what Jim calls executive data science. And then there is this, you know, executive data science Thing, which doesn't really have a name yet, so I'm just going to call it executive data science. And to understand what it is, you kind of have to have an appreciation of what what do, do executives do, you know, and the list is pretty long. It's very difficult to write down an executive job description, but they do things like, you know, they allocate resources, they create vision and strategy, they go out and sell the organisation to try to attract top talent, they establish internal incentives and hold people accountable to those incentives. They make judgment calls and break ties and adjudicate like interpersonal squabbles and those sorts of things. And so I think there are a bunch of ways of using data science for those things. It's really about like executive as a researcher or having executive offices that do research into what is the competitive landscape? What are the, the products that are out there? How are my, my competitors going to respond to this? And what available data do we have to really test those assumptions. Jim and I also talk about decision theory, the woeful state of causal inference techniques in contemporary data science, and what techniques it would behoove us all to import from econometrics and economics more generally. If that's not enough, we talk about the importance of thinking through the data generating process and things that can and will go wrong if you don't. In terms of allowing your data science work to inform your decision making, we also discuss Jim's maxim, always be integrating your loss function over your posterior. Last, but definitively not least, as Jim has worked in the data for good space for much of his career, we talk about what this actually means, with particular reference to Fast.ai founder and QUT professor of practice, Rachel Thomas's blog post called, Doing Data Science for Social Good Responsibly. Rachel's post takes as its starting point the following words of Sarah Hooker, a researcher at Google Brain. Data for good is an imprecise term that says little about who we serve, the tools used, or the goals. Being more precise can help us be more accountable and have a greater positive impact. So what Jim and I do is discuss his work in the light of these foundational concerns and considerations. Before jumping into the interview, I just wanted to thank you all for listening. This is our fourth full-length episode, and we're still discovering what this podcast actually is. So I'd honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. As we're just getting started, it would also be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice, and if you like it, do write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. All right, let's get into it. Welcome to Vanishing Gradients.
Hey there, Jim, and welcome to the show. G'day, Hugo. How are you? I am very well. Yourself? Can't complain. So we've been talking data for years and we've never done so in public. So I'm super, super excited for that. Uh, some of our best data conversations have been over dinner and in bars connected to laundromats and such things. And I actually hope later on to talk about the role of conviviality and sharing food in business and in, in data science as well. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear about your trajectory. You're uh, Director of Data Science at Schmidt Futures now, and I'd love to hear kind of where you started and your, your path to where you are now. Sure thing. So I'll give you a fairly short version. I started out as an economics undergrad at La Trobe University in Australia. It's a fairly small university and got really lucky in having a couple of, you know, pretty great mentors and, you know, honours advisors and those sort of things who really pushed me to develop these economic modelling skills. I was able to land a job at the Australian Treasury when I was you know, fresh out of undergrad and got placed in this, this really funny team. It was the macroeconometric modelling unit. And my job for the first year out of school was translating these large macroeconomic models from one language, it's called a TSP, into another weird language called eViews. And I'd have to like just line up two editors and, and translate the code. So I'm not sure if data science was really a thing back then, but I kept on, you know, opening these files. I had several early projects where I was translating code from MATLAB to Python as well. And I, I felt like it was almost, David Graeber has a book called Bullshit Jobs. Yeah, it, yeah. It's the idea of... <laughs> Duct taping, essentially, which is a job that comes from software originally, but being the kludge in, in, in many ways, um, or the blue tack. But it's important. It's a great experience. I had this this guy, Michael Kuperitzis, at Treasury, who sat over my shoulder for, you know, I don't know, first three months of my job and just, like, walked me through how to code. I'd never coded anything before in my life. I'd done, like, models you could solve with paper and pen on a chalkboard or something. You don't use paper and pen on a chalkboard, but... It was such a great experience in like learning to actually take some model and fit it with data. But there was this, you know, at the top of all the code, there was this, the, you know, the copyright and who wrote it and when they wrote it and those sort of things. And there's this guy whose code I was translating, Anthony Goldblum. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. He started a company called... I do know Anthony. He started Kaggle and he's a fellow Australian. Yeah. And it was about that time that he... I think it was at the Federal, uh, the sorry, Reserve Bank, and people were talking about this guy having left to do this startup thing in in data science, and I'd never really heard the term, and it was kind of interesting to me, and so that, that's kind of how I heard about it. But it took me years and years before I thought of myself as being a data scientist. I left the Treasury after burning out completely on the carbon tax work that we did in 2011 moved to Mexico and thought I was going to enjoy an early, early retirement. I think I was 26 or something. And so I moved to Mexico, took salsa lessons and spent eight hours a day just going through, I think I was like Andy Gilman and Jennifer Hill's book and learning, reading a paper a day and kind of coding them up and just, just playing for... What were you coding in at the time? All in, that was in R. Great. And, and you know, eventually ran out of money and moved back to Australia and landed this really cool job at the Grattan Institute, which is a think tank, mostly economic policy, 
based in Melbourne, based on the University of Melbourne campus. And it was just a really fun experience. So it was fun because like I was essentially the first data science they data scientists they'd hired. They didn't call us that back then. But they had, you know, we had a speechwriter who had previously been the Prime Minister's speechwriter on staff. We had like PR people who really understood how do you take research and put it on the front page of a newspaper. We had these program directors who knew like how do you spin a proposal so that you can get into a minister's office and sell it to them. You know, how do you actually have influence? Which is something you don't have in an organization like the Treasury Department where your influence is by law. You don't have to earn influence. When you're a small think tank of, you know, 25, 30 people, you need to go and work out who are the people you're trying to influence, what influences those people, and are you doing that? And so that, that was a, a really great kind of lesson. Somewhere in there, because one of our sponsors, the sponsors were the federal government, University of Melbourne, National Australia Bank, I think it was, Google, and a few other orgs. Because of Google as a sponsor, they sent us over this announcement that there was this program called the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Data Science Social Good Fellowship at the University of Chicago. And so I applied and I got in. And so it took, you know, I think I had a baby at that stage. It was like 11 months or something. And a wife who didn't really want to go to Chicago for three months. And, and so we took over, went over to Chicago and had, had a great time where I met all these like fantastically sharp American data scientists. Can I just ask what time of year did you go, did you take your family to Chicago? Please don't say December. No, no, this is, this is uh, summer and there's no place oh, like Chicago in summer. It's the, the coolest city in the world for three months yeah. and you don't want to go there in February. Yeah. And so we had this, this fantastic experience. It was a wonderful experience. They I currently have applications open, and if you release this podcast early enough, people should definitely apply. It's the best Fantastic. fellowship. fellowship. And I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes as well. Great. So went back to Melbourne and, and just like really felt that my place was in the United States. I almost immediately kind of started to try to make plans to move back. And so I started interviewing with a couple of American firms and found this, this wonderful little startup. It was like two guys... And they had this idea that because of mobile payments in East Africa being used to pay for solar panels in these kind of lease-to-purchase agreements. So how they work is you get these little solar panels and you stick them on your, on your pretty small house and you can unlock the panel by texting money. And so you text some, some shillings to the provider, they send you back a code, you punch the code into the solar panel, it unlocks for seven days or a month or something. And it's this way of providing credit for solar panels in, in areas where there is no electricity that had this interesting aspect because those companies that are selling these solar panels are doing so on credit, it's very capital intensive. They need to import the solar panels into Kenya or Uganda or Tanzania or wherever else they are. And then they only receive the money over some time. So if they need to grow, if they want to provide more electricity to more people, they would need capital. And so the insight of um, Daniel Goldfarb, who was the, one of the co-founders, was that he could use this secondary source of information from the mobile payment providers to verify that the financials that we were getting from the solar companies were indeed correct and not falsified. So you could, you could go and get the ground truth data, look at what the payments had been, take that to their financial records, and say, oh, this, this company is legit. You could also 
build a whole bunch of models on top of that data to work out, hey, you've originated, you've you know, loaned out a thousand solar panels, how much are you going to receive by when? And you could use that information to create financial products and make loans that were way, way cheaper for originators of solar panels. It turns out that solar panels is a pretty good industry. It grows very quickly, but the model that, that the team discovered really scaled beyond that. And so they started to go into motorcycle taxis and agriculture finance and small business finance and those sort of things. They've now grown, I think they're in nine countries at the moment throughout Southeast Asia and Africa with, I think they've hit $160 million out the door now. They're like a, a real up, no longer a startup. Great. And this is called Lendable, right? Lendable, fantastic little company. They're also hiring yep. an econometrician right now. So if you know any econometricians, let me know. So fantastic, Great. fantastic company. It was this experience being a, a real life data scientist. And then about a bit more than three years ago, someone reached out to me and they said, oh, we've, we saw in your CV, Impact Investing, Eric and Wendy Schmidt, Data Science, Social Good. There's this new philanthropy out, outfit. They're called Schmidt Futures. Um, you might want to talk to them. And I've been with Schmidt Futures now three years. And it's the best fit job I've ever had. Great. And I'm really excited to chat about your work there a bit later. There are, there are several things that came up that you mentioned that I think um, be great to sink our teeth into soon. The first I, that we'll get to soon is the role of uh, economics in, in data science and, and, and the tools that have been employed for decades in economics that I think um, are woefully missing from data science, including, as you know, something like um, the the sophisticated techniques of causal inference uh, used, in, used in economics. You mentioned... Um, Andy Gelman's and Jennifer Hill's book, which brings, of course, causal inference to mind. It also brings Bayes to mind. You mentioned R, and I think tools such as R kind of open up the world of data science so so incredibly. Something when we're talking about data for good that came up when talking about, um, let's say, American companies working in East Africa is how we, uh, what our responsibility is to to different stakeholders and especially cultures that we we may not have enough understanding around. Another thing I'll, I want to dive into, I think, is you mentioned we got the ground truth data. And I think ground truth is something that I'm personally inherently skeptical of. And it's it's worth talking a bit more about what happens in the data collection process and how that can approximate ground truth and who decides what ground ground truth is. That's to say, all of these things, I, I think, are going to be great, great um, proverbial meat, or let's say it's 2021, 2022. So plant-based meat to sink our tea. It's beyond beyond data science. But before we get into all of that, I'm interested in why data. And what, what I mean by this is a bit about me, like on and off, I'm relatively bullish and bearish and skeptical and cynical and excited about data science. And I understand like, you know, we should be taking like at least 30-day moving averages of how we feel about the industry we work in, you know, in multi-dimensional space. But I do ask myself a question more and more, like why why are we doing everything with data? What type of value can data bring? So maybe for, just from your personal experience, why do you, why do you work with with data as opposed to working in other other functions in organizations? Yeah, by accident. So I have many mottos. One of them is like, never ask a model, always ask a modeler. So I think about data science as a fantastic training ground for the next generation of leadership. So if you think of the people who bubbled up into senior leadership in the 80s or the 90s, it was like lawyers and MBAs and economists. They ended up running 
having their hands on the levers of, of power. And then through the late 90s through to now, it's engineers. It's, it's you know, people with CS degrees who or dropouts from CS programs who uh, end up with their hands on levers of power. I think what we'll probably see is more people coming up from a data science track. And so I think the real value of data science is it forces you or enables you to test assumptions very quickly. The person with access to data can have an idea and quickly whip up a model or whip out a very easy piece of analysis and test their idea and get immediate feedback rather than having to go on hunches or theory or anything else. And I think that that is the real value of data science in like a pretty macro sense. I like the idea of data data skills bubbling up to the top. I suppose there's a question, do we want people who are very sophisticated data scientists doing that? Or is is the, the play to have people with significant da- domain expertise getting data skills and then taking that with them? I don't think I've met a huge number of people who have the domain expertise who just like one day go and become data scientists. You, you definitely meet some. I think there are more curious data scientists who then go and get domain expertise in a topic. I think there are definitely like economists or political scientists or physicists or whatever who are like, they go and study something uh, and that used to be the track that you get into data science. Now there are data science programs that enable that. But, you know, I think that we can, that we should be expecting data scientists to develop domain expertise because they're curious people. Great. Uh, now, now that, which is not to say that, that some basic analysis skills should be universal. Everyone on your team should be able to execute a simple SQL query rather than being blocked by a data scientist who's like on the bus or something because those are just day-to-day skills for almost everyone now. But when it comes to who needs to be able to do the end-to-end data science stuff, I think it's data scientists and they, they should be doing it because it's like specialization is, is important for everything. There's, there's also a good question like how much domain experts should know. So I, I think one example is if someone in HR is using machine learning and a hiring flow. Now there's a question of whether this should happen at all because of all the bias we've, we've seen. I mean, we've seen Amazon scrap their, their tools because of the amount of bias in, in those. But in the case that someone in HR is u- using this, it's arguable that they definitely need to know about confusion matrices, false positive, precision recall, these these types of things. Or maybe we develop, I mean, I joke that confusion matrix, it turns out that that's the best name for this, this matrix. But I do think we don't necessarily need them to know about gradient descent, but they do need to know about the aspects of data science, ML and AI that can impact what they do. So analogy I like to use is when you drive a car, or a bus, you don't need to know how the internal combustion engine works, but you need to know if you drive at a particular speed into a wall, you're going to kill everyone. Yeah. Does that make sense? But, and you know, I think people learn this by case studies. The, be- the best three courses, like academic courses I've ever taken at both undergraduate and grad level, have been have had the flavour of their history that goes through, hey, here are some models, here are the pol- policy decisions that were made with them, Here's how the model, models were wrong. Here's how science reacted and improved the model. And mm-hmm. I think we can do the same thing with with data science. We ought to be like showing, okay, so you know, Amazon were using screening algorithms to like you know 
you know, select people and then they found it was like really biased. So they moved on and then they did this, like there's some response. So I think that, that like teaching people those methods, you know, stories stick in people's minds and we should be using stories to kind of like illustrate all the problems. The other, the other side of it is the problems are the interesting thing. I think data scientists are a set of people who are especially engaged by challenging problems and uh, we can talk about this a little bit later, but I'm really interested in how we can really improve ethics in data science by turning the ethical question into the central research question. We'll touch on Great. that later. I'm really excited about that. The other thing that comes to mind when we're talking about these skills bu bubbling up and you know the people who control the leaves of power, uh, I, I think as, as you put it, this concept of executive data science that I've heard you, heard you talk about. Now, there are many ways to slice data science. One way to slice data science is into descriptive analytics, which can be exploratory as well and include insights and dashboards and that type of stuff. Predictive, which includes but isn't limited to machine learning. And then prescriptive analytics, which is decision theory, telling you how to make decisions, which I'm really excited to come back later to discuss with you, Jim. But the way, one way you've sliced it, the space, which I really like, is into kind of tool building and tools for automation, what we want to automate away. Then something which augments humans in a number of ways, figuring out how to get machine and human intelligence working besides each other. And then above these is what you call executive data science. And I think this ties into our conversation about what leaders, the types of skills they need to have. So maybe you can tell us a bit about what you even mean by executive data science. Sure, yeah. I think it's worth kind of like really describing the first two as well. So these, at the bottom, you've got this like, what is data science as a product? And there are many, many roles which involve you know, people building some model or something with the fundamental aim of you know, improving recommendation system or making a news feed better or whatever it is. They've got some model and research and they, they'll tweak the model and see whether it you know, makes people stay online longer or whatever it is. And there's like an entire industry of that. People get paid very, very well to do this. Or, or you know, too often it's probably about surfacing really high quality ads to people, which is something I, I care deeply about. Then I think, you know, you've got a lot of tools and that's, I think a lot of the dashboard world sits in like augmenting people. So dashboards, search, those are things. It's like, how can you decision support? And then there is this, you know, executive data science thing, which doesn't really have a name yet. So I'm just going to call it executive data science. And to understand what it is, you kind of have to have an appreciation of what, what do, do executives do? You know, and the list is pretty long it's very difficult to write down an executive job description. But they do things like, you know, they allocate resources, they create vision and strategy, they go out and sell the organization to try to attract top talent. They establish internal incentives and hold people accountable to those incentives. They make judgment calls and break ties and adjudicate like interpersonal squabbles and those sorts of things. I think about the, the sorts of things that people do in the automation space as almost being like on-off. It's a level level change. If you get, you you know, you go, you, you build the recommendation system and then like, you know, it just has some level shift on what the firm is doing or what the, you know, whatever you're doing. It just, it just boosts things. And you can generate a huge amount of value that way, an enormous amount of value. But it's not like what, it's not sort of value that differentiates differentiates the the wealth of nations like why are some countries rich and some countries poor why are some companies worth a trillion dollars and others fizzle out after a couple of years i think 
those sort of things are much more influenced by strategy, by who you attract, what sort of networks you're able to get yourself into and so on, so on and so forth. And that's why, you know, I think about the trajectory, what's changing the growth rate of the good that your organization is doing. And so I think there are a bunch of ways of using data science for those things. It's really about like executive as a researcher or having executive offices that do research into what is the competitive landscape? What are the the products that are out there? How are my, my competitors going to respond to this? And what available data do we have to really test those assumptions? So like at the moment, this happens because you've got like really smart kind of McKinsey type people who will move into those sorts of roles. They're very analytical. They know how to boil down like the most important you know, principal components and things through strategically. But I just think that the data scientist toolkit rather than management consultant toolkit is the one that is probably likely to benefit from those, so likely to do well in those sorts of roles in the long run. Now, I think that the, the big challenge we've got here is that the sharpest data scientists all get soaked into the modeling world and they kind of poo-poo dashboards, they poo-poo, you know, that sort of descriptive stuff because it's not hard enough, it's not engaging enough, and yet it's the most important thing. Almost any any senior executive will tell you they'll like much rather keep the dashboards than keep the the recommendation systems. Absolutely, there's because an dashboards. well, there's an impedance mismatch between what people like doing and and are good at and what creates value. And I I really want to have that conversation now. So to to set the stage, and I'll include a link in the show notes, you gave a talk several years ago with the decidedly unclickbaity title of productizing structural models at what was then called Data EngConf, and now I think is called Data Council. And I just actually want to give a shout out to Pete Soderling, who you introduced me to several years ago and has been one of the most inspiring community builders, as far as I'm concerned, in the data space. If you haven't heard of Data Council, check them out. If you have heard of them, check them out even more. Pete creates really wonderful spaces for people to connect. And I've actually met many of my colleagues and close friends through Data Council and and, and Data Eng as well. If you're listening, open invitation to come and join me on the, the podcast as well. And if you're not listening, I'll find you. So, Jim, you actually gave a cla- a really nice, like, Harvard Business Review two by two in this talk, right? Of I honestly loved it. Of what I just want to check my notes to make sure I get this right. Yeah, the on the x-axis was the additional impact of success. So, what type of additional value data science activities can create? And on the y-axis is the probability of of success. So it was framed around prioritizing effort, essentially what people are good at versus what value they create. So maybe we can talk about both of these. I don't know if you'd like to take them, you know, turn by turn. We've already talked about some things that create value, so. Yeah, yeah, and value is a hard one. There's that, what's that AI art generating app that's been like all over Twitter last couple of weeks. Yep. Wombo, is it? Wombi? Yeah, something like a Wambo, maybe. I, can, I honestly can't remember the name. Whatever it is. So some really smart people have made this tech and it it delights a lot of people. And maybe it's kind of fun entertainment. Maybe they're pitching something really great in the future and just getting everyone's status so they can do that. But, you know, I don't consider things like that to have an enormous impact in the long run. So I will stop you there. And I think we can probably agree to disagree on this, but I do think um, 
discussing the value of of art is actually inherently subjective and you know these things are multi-causal and there are lagging indicators as, as well so we don't have a you know if you told me picasso wasn't wasn't valuable i'd say well you know look at the amount of money people pay for his artwork right i think with like a data scientist toolkit helping get monetary policy right helping change regulation that might keep people poor helping improve diagnosis of new diseases. Like I think there are lots of things that have genuinely, there's a lot of apple pie out there. And those things are the things that we ought to be focusing on, especially those things. It's a false dichotomy have. you're setting up, Jim. Yeah, I know, I know. My and, point and, is yeah, that we, we, we you do can ascribe monetary to... value to diagnosis and this this type of stuff. Whereas I think it's just far more an open, open space. And without art, we'd die spiritual deaths. So that's my only statement there. Totally. And you you can go to places where people have, have died spiritual deaths because they are kind of sterile in terms of yeah. art. Yeah. And I live in one of the world's great, you know, artistic cities and enjoy that a lot. So so I totally, totally buy that this is very valuable stuff to do. I have made choices in my own career to work on topics that I think have are going to have very large positive externalities and totally. apply our tools to those sort of topics. Where is the mismatch between what creates value and what people are good at or what people can do and enjoy? Well, I use this kind of example. Um, so Wombo is like definitely an example where like it's actually creating a lot of delight. And we know this because people are like running it and they share it. And it's like, and so it's probably one of these marginal cases. There are, there are other cases of like a lot of effort that don't create much delight and those are probably in the kind of low, low additional impact category. And there are these other areas where we probably have the tools to do it well. So they're like, you know, I think predictive analytics, for example, or A-B testing online, we've got tools to do this so that if we're working in a, in a deterministic system, predictive models can now basically solve any deterministic system. I mean, they, they're playing computer games, they're playing Go and all that sort of stuff. Once we've got an open system... So it's a deterministic system where you may need to know the rules as well. Right, but they're pretty good at working right. out what the rules are so long as we've got mm-hmm. some scoring function. Yep. What, I, what we're not as good at is when we're working with an open system. So that is when the information that the model is using only captures a part of what's going on. And so this is like you know, forecasting, monetary policy... Most of the kind of like stuff on websites of like recommendation systems. It's not a, we can change the odds a little bit, but we're not like making perfect predictions or building technology that will win every single game. So I think that's something that we're fairly good at. And the answer, if you want to improve those sorts of models, is to try to collect more data, which has like possibly positive, possibly negative implications depending on what's being done with the model. It also has, some really big questions. You mentioned ground truth before. The thing that kind of motivates me at the moment is this question of measurement error and who does measurement error fall onto. I think there are many, many people. Everyone has a story. We know we know on Twitter when somebody, you, there are these threads where it's like, oh, when has it been some, some time that you've been underestimated? And it's a very emotive topic. People, everyone has this, this story about when they were underestimated this grudge they hold for years and years and years. And models will do this all the time if we train them on data that has like measurement error that differs across groups and that will systematically like hurt people. And so I think we have to be 
pretty careful there. These are not deterministic systems. And then there are these counterfactual systems like that's causal inference. I think some data scientists are really, really good at causal inference. I don't think that's... I'd argue it's a minority, and that's something I want to get to more later. So there's causal inference, and then there's like structural causal inference, like what happens when I go and change the rules of the game? What happens when I introduce a new product to a market? What happens when I you know, change strategy of an organization and how it's engaging with its competitors? And those sort of rules about when you change, sorry, those sort of bits of analysis, when you change the rules of the game, there are people who have those tools. They don't necessarily call themselves data scientists, but I think that is an area where we can have a huge positive impact with the toolkit that we've got if only we like add a few more tools. This is super important. And let's be very explicit now and probably circle back to it later. But the way I want to frame this is that, as you've said previously to me and elsewhere, if you throw a neural net at something, at a system in equilibrium, and we'll come back to what that means, because I think that's actually a term that not enough data scientists have a robust understanding of. And then we perturb the system out of equilibrium and try to use that neural net to make inferences. It'll make precisely the wrong inferences, right? Yeah, I have a a really close friend back home who came to me once and said, I've got this data on sales of some product and my predictive model is doing extremely well. For every store, we've got what the price was in every day, how many many of the products they sold, and we can fit this model and it's got amazing predictive performance and it says that when I increase the price of this good, the sales will go up. Like, ah, you've discovered mm. one of the big problems in econ. Yeah. That, and why would that be? So, well, competitive markets, are, right? Competitive markets, where what you observe that P, the P and Q, price and quantity, are determined in equilibrium. And you know, the the heuristic here would be the store manager knows when something is popular, when it's hot, and they'll increase the price. And people also know when it's hot and they will go and buy more of it and the price is actually responding. So never like never reason from a price change, as as economists like to say. And so the whole point of structural modeling is that you interpret the data through the lens of a model that has some concept of equilibrium. And that enables some very powerful types of analysis. You know, for example, what happens if we introduce a new product? What happens if we impose a tax on something? What happens if we add a new store to the mix and so on? That's like a very powerful set of tools, especially in the field of industrial organization in, in economics that we as data scientists should be using much more of. Absolutely. And it's funny, we we should leverage the knowledge that all data scientists have in their specific domain. So I don't know about equilibrium from economics. I know it from my STEM background in chemistry and biophysics, essentially, right? And cells, right. cell and, biology. And, and ecologists talk about equilibrium as well. Yeah. You've got like predator-prey models and there's going to be some equilibrium in that system and you perturb it and you never it, it's never thinking about things as though predictive models, the only models worth worth using. And I, I, like Kaggle has has been fantastic in its as a training ground for many data scientists, and, and they've I think it's had a huge impact on the quality of predictive models. It's also like fried a lot of people, and sorry, that's probably that's not a very generous term. It is it has made a lot of people consider a predictive models being the kind of like best thing to want to build, and because. You know, science 
does say that we should be able to make predictions from science, from something. But it's prediction in a counterfactual that actually matters for decisions. I want to know what will happen if I take decision one or decision two. And you cannot infer that when all the people in your data set took the decision they did because it was the right one for them. Yep. Exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned Kaggle in, in that light, because this is something that I hope to come back to time and time again in this, this podcast is not necessarily only Kaggle, but leaderboard style competitions. They've lifted up a, a whole variety of people to be capable of, of doing incredible things, along with kind of the APIs and tools such as Scikit-Learn and XGBoost. You know, there's a whole and all the, the PyData and R ecosystem as well. I, I do think when something has such a massive groundswell, it's worth interrogating what has worked and what hasn't. So leaderboard style competitions don't teach you best practices about collecting data or dealing with data drift or the data engineering necessary to or experiment trackers and this this type of stuff. They also, I think, um, have taught us to think that, you know, a 10 to the minus six improvement in accuracy, if we, you know, use GPUs or TPUs instead is maybe a good thing. And that may not be a good thing. So these things are worth interrogating when something a methodology gets this much um, usage, let's say. I do want to move on. Before that, I just want to recap that the things we're good at down to the things that we're bad at, because I think this is really important. We're good at prediction in known systems where we, we know or can learn the rules. We're pretty good at predicting in noisy systems when there's a robust signal. We're not great at causal inference. Something I'll throw in here, which I want to get back to, we're not great at uncertainty in decision-making. And then we're not great at structural modeling and kind of systems involving lots of different agents, particularly when we're away from equilibrium. Now, some of these things that we are good at add value, like image classification for medical diagnosis, right? So x-ray classification is, is one. Now, I think when we're talking about businesses, predictive analytics can add value. It definitely does at the top in tech. But there's a question with like small to medium sized businesses, whether machine learning does add value over an analytics. And I'm saying this because I've seen so many companies try to adopt a machine learning strategy where it just, they don't have the scale that it will actually have a positive ROI, essentially. And I've seen Machine learning teams be hired at great cost. Even a few machine learning engineers and data scientists. It's incredibly expensive for a company. And then I've seen those functions be gutted. So that's something worth thinking thinking more about. I would say for most startups, the first data scientist should almost spend all their time trying to scrape data on who all the competitors are, who all the customers are, what conferences they're going to, how am I going to meet them, what the networks of people are. I think just like understanding... You know, that kind of competitive intelligence stuff, I think, is way, way, way more important for most startups than does this subject line work better than that subject line. Which the other you know, thing, sort of that's incredible. Or, yeah. or building like predictive uh, predictive models for Rexuses or whatever. Agreed. And the other thing, I mean, you know, people have heard me talk before. No, I'd probably babble on about this far too much, but like the times I've seen startups hire their first data scientist who becomes a data engineer for twelve to eighteen months. Maybe include that in the job, JD, right? But having someone who can 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 do the data engineering stuff and is excited about it as as well, I think, is important. So where I want to get to now is, um, in no uncertain terms, I do think we have a methodology crisis in the industry. I actually think we're kind of in the midst of a a series of interlocking crises that I want to kind of elucidate more throughout this this podcast. There's a credibility crisis. There's a tooling crisis. 
There's a lack of standardization crisis. There's a data culture crisis. I think we're probably entering some sort of labor market crisis as, as well. And maybe I'm being hyperbolic here, but I actually, I think it's worth bringing these things to, to the forefront. Why I'm so excited, among many other reasons of talking to you, is I think part of the methodology crisis is that we don't have enough widespread tools around causal inference, decision theory, structural mo modeling. I want to talk about whether these techniques are necessary or um, could be helpful for robust data science and how we can spread these tools more, uh, tools and techniques, whether there are tools for them as well. Our mutual friend and colleague, Adam Kelleher, will probably argue that it isn't a tooling problem. We actually have have the tools. It may be actually a cultural cultural and norm-based problem and labor market problem as well. But the way I want to set the stage here is I think we've been living in a hallucination. What I mean by that is, I don't, you may recall Chris Anderson's piece from 2008 in Wired called The End of Theory, The Data Deluge Makes the Scientific Method Obsolete. Okay, now the argument here was in the age of big data, we don't need theory. Any and of course, Chris was being provocative. But the argument was in the era of big data, we have so much that we don't need to understand things anymore. All we need is to look at the data and it will tell us what to do. Now, I want to set the stage historically as well. What I mean by that is that this is an argument that actually goes back at least as far as Francis Galton and Pearson, who essentially developed, I mean, Galton developed correlation, which we now call correlation, right? Um, and regression to the mean and these types of things. But what they did was essentially part of their project was to subsume causality into correlation, saying correlation is enough to describe causality in the world. I'd recommend people, if they're interested in this, look at Judea Pearl's Book of Why, where he goes into this. I just want to make clear that Judea Pearl has a significant bias. I'm sure he'd admit that as well in terms of telling this story. There's also a book called Bernoulli's Fallacy, which we may get back to by Aubrey, Aubrey Clayton, which goes into kind of the historical aspects of thinking about correlation more than causality. It's also worth mentioning that both Galton and Pearson were eugenicists. I, if I recall correctly, Pearson was the first Galton chair of eugenics at Cambridge, I think, but I may have got the institution wrong and I'll, I'll fact check that after after the fact. This is actually, and I'm not just, just saying this in order to appeal to the Twitterati or something along those lines. My, what I really want to do is make clear that the statistical methods that have been developed and that we still use, especially in frequentism, actually were developed to scienceify the eugenics movement. And for that reason, these things are worth in interrogating as well. Now, all that having been said, there's an incredibly rich history there. My real point is that we don't do causality or causal inference correctly. And there are huge his historical forces at play that mean that we don't. So how important is causal inference and how do we get out of this hole, man? Yeah, look, I, I think it's, if not like, the most important problem than one of them that we as data scientists should be concerned about. In my world, it is what everyone's concerned about. So, so when you say, when you, and I keep on hearing this, I've got a data science science causal inference. I'm like, oh, every, everyone seems to be in causal inference these days. I mean, they just gave Nobel Prize to David Card and Joshua Angrist and Hito Imbens for their work on natural experiments. So using observational data and natural experiments to generate causal inferences about policy shifts. Beautiful. And let's just give a shout out to Angrist's book and Pishka's book, um, Mastering Metrics, which if anyone's interested in learning some more causal inference stuff, that's a, that's a beautiful book to get you started. Yeah. And just yesterday, the Nobel Prize 
outfit or Nobel Foundation that has dropped the Nobel lecture from all three. They're really, really worth watching. They're, they're a, a generalist or like an undergrad level introduction to very serious topics. And Josh in particular, I work with Josh on the board of Avella, which is a impact-focused startup, is very, very committed to exploring education and inequality in education and how we can do things about how can we use these sort of methods to improve education policy. And so I think a lot of the listeners to your podcast would be pretty engaged by by his um, Nobel lecture on, for example, do fancy schools actually do much? Turns out uh, it's all selection, no treatment. Fantastic. And we'll include a link to those in the show notes. What I'm also hearing is that you and I have pretty serious selection bias in who we talk to as well. Totally. We'll get to that. Tell me about the importance of causal, causal inference. Yeah. Okay. So causal inference is like one of the tools that I just think we should all be learning, we should all be aware of. You know, my, my take on this is that most data scientists hopefully will not stay data scientists forever. I hope many of them go and become entrepreneurs, go and become executives, go and become generalists and take with them this mindset of curiosity and a recognition that research is really important and an ability to test assumptions quickly. One of those really big tools is causal inference and, and it's almost knowing that it exists is enough for many people and knowing the sorts of problems that good causal inference can uncover in your data and uncover in your your own beliefs is enough so this this case with you know the famous research by many people associated with Joshua Angrist including Virag Patak and Christopher Walters and these sort of people so they've they've done all this work looking at the effects of you know elite these exam schools and if I live in New York City and all the time on NPR or in the New York Times, you'll read about the, the crisis in admissions to some of these fancy schools. So Stuyvesant, you know, had like seven African-American kids in a huge class uh, last year. And because they say we've got these admissions thresholds and if you're on the other side of it, we'll give you an offer. And if, if not, then sorry. And not enough you know, people are applying from minority groups and not getting in. And it's, it's like a big issue. This is such a salient political issue. We spend so much kind of cognitive effort just talking about it, thinking about it, arguing about it. And so these schools have better be really, really good. They better add a huge ton of value to justify the disappointment that we have at people missing out. And it turns out when you consider people who just get into those schools and just go to the next best, there is no additional impact on you know, where they go to college or their test scores. It's all that these schools are really good. Yes, the average kid who goes to these schools is very, very smart and those friendships might persist for life. But in terms of a lot of the observable outcomes that we really care about, like are we leveling kids up on tests or getting them into college at different rates? The answer is no. And in Chicago, there's some follow-up studies there that shows that these super salient exam schools might actually be drawing kids away from really high-performing charter system and sending them to these schools that aren't boosting them as much. So you go and do your exam, you had an offer at a high-performing charter school that would have really helped you. You get the offer to a fancy school where, yes, your average classmate's smarter, but it doesn't actually level you up very much. You go to that school and you do worse than you would have otherwise. 
And so I think mm. knowing, like you go and do the causal inference or go and learn about causal inference, you go through all these case studies and you kind of know what to start looking for when you're doing your own analyses. And I think that's the important bit. And the same with decision theory. So decision theory, decision-making under uncertainty is a set of tools that we've got that really say, well, let's say I don't know whether an effect is zero or five. It could be anywhere in there. But I know that if I take the medicine and the effect is zero, it's going to hurt me. Think of this like chemotherapy. And I, if I take the medicine and the effect is five, I get a lot better. And I've got some uncertainty about whether it is in zero or five. And what you can do is basically assess how you will feel. What does your cost benefit look like at all those points along the uncertainty and take the weighted average according to how uncertain you are at each of those points. And you average over those and that's called, you know, integrating your loss function over your posterior, able FOIP. And it tells you what action you should take. And it's, it's, you know, there's this great Deirdre McCloskey, she's this wonderful economist, historian, and just interesting person. She's got this line in her wonderful essay on the cult of statistical significance, where she says, you know, imagine you're, you're playing, you're, you're, you hear someone in the distance yelling, help, help. But, you know, at the you, you can't be sure that she's that you're not hearing kelp, kelp over like a heated game of Scrabble. I, are you sure that you wouldn't go and and save that person, or at least go in and check it out? It's like we know intuitively that we have this loss function. We would we like it is really bad if someone needs help, and we wouldn't run to their rescue, even if they're just saying kelp because they're playing Scrabble. So we know that we would do that. And not having that baked into our, our um, use of like estimates from models is kind of important. Yeah, and I think this is actually worth elucidating and spelling out um, with even more clarity. I've, I've actually got her quotation from you in front of me, so I'm going to read this out. If someone called help help in a faint voice in the midst of lots of noise so that at the 1% level of significance, and we're going to come back to what that means, it could be said that she's saying kelp, kelp, which arose because she was perhaps in a heated game of Scrabble, you wouldn't go to rescue her. So what we have there is some sort of, um, we have a, a likelihood or probability on, on one axis, then kind of impact on the other. And we want to, we don't only want to look at the likelihood. If there's a small chance that something really full on is happening, maybe we, we want to go there, right? Now, the reason I want to talk about the 1% level of significance is because what she's essentially calling out there is statistical significance testing along with baking statistics into de decision-making processes, okay? So this is actually a message I sent you on Signal the, the other day that I'm going to kind of pa paraphrase. It's a nuanced thing. It looks like a simple example, but it's nuanced because it involves hypothesis testing. And most people, including myself and a lot of working scientists, can't easily intuitively re recall what the 1% level of significance means, okay? I asked you, could we change this example to it's 90% probable that she's saying kelp, kelp? But that, that actually misses the point, okay? So what it actually means is 
The 1% level of significance says the probability of hearing, hearing help help, as, sorry, hearing what you hear, assuming that she called help help is 1%. So it's a low probability that you'll be embarrassed by uh, false alarm, essentially, right? But the fact that she's saying, maybe saying help help is enough to know that perhaps you should actually run and do that. So when you convolve the loss function with the posterior, which in this case is help, help, or kelp, kelp, kind of turns out that you should go and check things out. Is that, have I butchered that, or is that pretty reasonable? I was say it's pretty reasonable. It's as reasonable as any description of uncertainty gets. I think there's this, there are these heuristics, and I, again, I don't, I don't literally mean you need to go and write out your loss function all the time. I don't literally mean you need to calculate a posterior all the time. I, but my hobby horse is saying you need to, you always be integrating your loss function over your posterior because it's an exceptional heuristic. You need to, to think about how are you uncertain and how would you feel if you made this choice at all those points of uncertainty that you have? Because if you're not thinking like that, so, so, and, and I think like this, this actually motivates a lot of the precaution that was reasonable to take, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. Like we had no idea whether the R was like 1.5 or 7. We had no idea whether because people were in hospital for so long, whether the fatality rate was half a percent or 10%. And it's like in that moment, if you remember February in 2020, when yes, about 1% of people had died, but there were all these people who hadn't been released from hospital yet and were like, oh, we have no idea what case fatality was. What should we have done? Well, we should have locked everything down. And if we would have done that if we had Ebola. Now, once you start to resolve the uncertainty, then you're like, oh, now we can do the cost-benefit analysis, which are the thing, which parts of the economy that we should open up, which are the, the types of activities that are fairly low risk. Let's like be as reasonable as we can in opening things up. But you know, we got that so wrong because we don't have this mindset of able folk. And it's because like you need to think, okay, it might have been 10. It could have been 10. R might have been 10 and case fatality rate might have been 10 and that, that would have been awful. We would have like decimated a huge amount of population and shutting it down, shutting everything down for a few weeks while we work it out would have been exactly the right thing to do. Now, we got lucky that it wasn't, but it could have been for a moment. And so, and you want to always evaluate the quality of decision based on what information you had then. Like, you know, you don't ever say he was really smart, he bought a lottery ticket and he won. You're like, no, the expected value was was less than a dollar and you spent a dollar on a ticket. Like that was a weird thing to do. Exactly. And and so actually at the time I wrote an essay for O'Reilly Radar, which I'll link to in the show notes, called Decision Making Under Uncertainty. I think something along those lines. And the two key points you made, the latter point you made is the first one I made in the essay, which is you judge the quality of a decision not on an outcome. That's a total logical fallacy, actually. The second is you want to consider likelihood and impact. What we're doing here with AbleFOIP, so once again, it's um, always be integrating your loss function of your posterior. What we're doing here is projecting that down on, onto one dimension. And I want to come back to kind of kind of elucidating quite what all those those terms mean. But before that, depending on your risk appetite, you can look at, a, I suppose, a matrix, right? A risk matrix of impact on one axis and likelihood and probability on, on the other axis and see the different possibilities and based on your appetite for risk, whether you're risk-friendly or risk-averse. Like, of course, like where you put your 401k will vary 
if you're 20 as opposed to your 60, right? So maybe you don't want to project it down at that point. I want to come back to the chemotherapy case you mentioned, because you could imagine, and this is a slide from a talk you gave at NYR maybe one or two years ago, the conference Jared Lander organizes, so fantastic conference. Also great dude. Amazing, amazing community builder. And yeah, super lovely. You had a slide there which had the effect size of a chemotherapy drug, which it looked super effective. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll take this. But then when you look at the cost of taking it, which can include, you know, harm to, to your body and all, all of these things that we know about in chemotherapy. And actually, when you able flip it, essentially, when you uh, integrate over your cost function, what you see in the particular case you, you gave is that it doesn't outweigh, the benefits don't outweigh the cost. So essentially, that's what we're, we're computing there, correct? Exactly. So there are many, many cases where you might have some statistically significant effect fairly precisely estimated, but not perfectly precisely. And you look mm-hmm. at that effect and it's like... And it's not just statistically significant, it's a practically significant effect as well. Yeah, yeah. it's like, right? if, like I take yeah. This, if I take this drug, I expect to live four months longer. Uh, think, think about it like that. If I take this drug, it gives me, I expect to live four months longer. But that four months isn't deterministic. It's not like I will definitely live four months longer if I take mm-hmm. this. It might be zero months, it might be eight months. And there is some uncertainty about that. Now, the drug also makes you lose your hair. You vomit for three days. You have to go to the toilet 12 times a day. You're in immense pain. Now, if, you, if it doesn't do anything, if you end up dying at the same time, you would have died anyway, but you went through all this pain, you are worse off. Yep. Now, if you go through all this pain and you live eight months, then you're, you're better off. But it's that uncertainty and you need to think about that uncertainty. And, and like there are great cases of doctors prescribing things that they, when they get to like terminal stage of, for example, cancer, they don't actually prescribe themselves the same drugs they've been prescribing because they understand the uncertainty and understand the cost. And they're like, ah, I just want to go home and spend time with my family and take morphine. And so like this is a really important thing that you, the even if your loss function at that three-month point of expected increase in life is positive is negative like is a, is a like at the expected point it doesn't mean that your expected loss is negative it could be quite a large loss so the other thing that i want to discuss explicitly now is you've done something very clever jim and what you've done is you've snuck in bayesian inference without telling anyone right so we're talking about a posterior distribution which essentially is what you know about your parameters with uncertainty after you've collected your data and also based on any prior information you may have. What you've also done, and a la Deirdre McCloskey, is compared it with frequentism in a way, and in a situation in which the Bayesian answer is the right answer and the frequentist answer is the wrong answer to the question. This is not always the case, okay? And I'm skeptical of people who are pure Bayesians because you can only ever probably be a Bayesian as far as I'm concerned. Sorry, not sorry. And... But what I do want to say is the reason, one of the reasons this mistake has been made in this case and is in a lot of others comes down to something I referred to earlier. There's a book uh, by Aubrey Clayton called Bernoulli's Fallacy, okay? And this is an an incredible book because what it points out is a fallacy that, and to stand up to Bernoulli as well, the man and the entire family, and to title a book based around Bernoulli's fallacy is such a wonderful act. And it's also so true. The fallacy here 
that Bernoulli made when doing the balls from the urns and the flipping the coins and all of that was that Bernoulli, when he wanted to talk about the probability of the model given the data was actually talking about the probability of the data given the model, okay? Now, these things can coincide in several cases and frequentists can get the latter, uh, get the former given the latter, but a lot of the time, this is the frequentist error. So maybe you can speak a bit to the importance of Bayesian inference, Bayesian thinking, Bayes' theorem, all of all of these things, where what we really want is, um, I suppose, something you would probably call like well-calibrated uncertainty about the distribution of your unknowns given the observed data. So I guess it's maybe my spicy take here that it really doesn't matter. Amazing. Like I spent years and years and years of my life becoming a fairly competent Bayesian statistician and I don't really care. The reason I think it's worth learning that stuff is because it teaches you a certain way of thinking. You build models in a particular way. You have to think about what is the generative model. You have to think about like, what is my data? Like, and you have to like, rather than just say, hey, I'm going to try and predict the outcome or I'm just going to like run some regression, in interpret some coefficients. You're like, hmm, how did my data come about? You know, what is that process? And think through it that way. I think that's the important thing about Bayes because in order to write down your likelihood function, you do need to consider like what was the generative model, and you need to make your your assumptions explicit, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's that that becomes thoroughly addictive. You you just think about how to build models that way. I don't. I'm not like completely sold. Like if if I write a model and it fits well with maximum likelihood, um, and my uncertainty isn't isn't too far different, but it runs a thousand times faster, I'm like, oh, I'll just use the maximum likelihood. Like I'm not literally doing able foib on every single thing. Oh, be careful um, there though, because maximum likelihood is Bayesian inference with a uniform prior. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So and sometimes sometimes uh, maximum likelihood will not work. You've got like a whole bunch of hierarchical models where the the likelihood function is degenerate and you you just don't do it very well. So like sometimes you just need to use basic methods to fit models, but it's not because you're a Bayesian, it's just because like those methods are what you use to get the, the correct estimates for your model. Yeah. And, and I'm not even like dogmatic about like, oh, I need to write out loss function, I need a posterior, and I need to plug those things. Like, I'm, I mean these things seriously. Like, you do need to think about like, what is your loss function? You do need to think about like how uncertain I am and what the model is because that is how you understand the system and understand the, the consequence of decisions in the system. I don't think that you literally need to be fitting Bayesian models and writing any loss function and doing all that integration. Like, that's fun. It's like a little bit super analytical. I think it builds habits of thought, especially there's this hygiene in distinguishing the probability of an event and your how you feel if that event happens. Distinguishing those two things. Like, you don't want to be the person who's like, I don't think Donald Trump's going to win because you don't want him to win. That's like a, a foolish sort of thing. You want to, to model your own biases. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And, and and so it gives you a toolkit to think about those two things separately. Yep. Now, I, I do not think you actually literally need to be fitting models or literally need to be building them or doing anything once you've learned them. The, the learning them is is the point. The, it is the human capital development process 
for a type of decision making that will hopefully benefit you later on. Great. And I do think I kind of want to zoom in on generative modeling before we move on to the work you're doing now, because I, I think specifying several levels of approximation, increasing levels of approximation, the the process that generates the data you have also, it comes back to this idea of ground truth, right? It also allows you to specify your data collection process, right? So you can put in the biases you have along there, whether it be selection bias or survivorship bias or any of these things, right? Or Berkson's paradox or whatever it may be. So to wrap up this section on generative modeling and Bayesian inference, what tools, if someone were interested in, in doing this type of stuff, what tools would you suggest they use? So I think learning base stand and doing things in R is just like the fewest lines of code to most expressive. I mean, Python's a wonderful language. It uses like so many lines of weird code to do anything, like define all these classes or whatever to just like, you know, generate some, some fake numbers. Whoa, whoa, so whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to set you. off any flame Hugo. wars. Of, Hugo, of course. Yeah. Good. But um, the, the, you're right as well. But if you are a Pythonista or interested in PyData, do check out PyMC, PyMC3, because you don't have to do a bunch of OOP to do that. And you can write several lines of code in order to specify your models. There's some, you know, context managers and a few like idiomatic stuff. But if you like working in Python, that works. But I definitely think Stan is. Is yeah, incredible Stan, and Stan, it's Stan amazing up a world you, for you and a lot of other people, right? Yeah, yeah, and because it allows you to just like describe your model in a shorthand that looks a lot like how you would describe your model on a, on a chalkboard. And if you're used to writing down models like that, it's very, very cool. Yeah. Now, I would always say before you ever look at the data, you write down what you think the model is and you simulate fake data from that model. Great. Because otherwise you're already overfitting to something, right? Yeah. And it also tells you like, hey, so, and there's this process where you say, here is a prior distribution I think my parameters might live in. I'm going to draw some fake numbers from those priors. I'm going to use that to simulate some fake data. And then you look at that fake data and you're like, that's nothing like the data that I observe. And you're like, well, my priors must be completely wrong. And so I go back and I like tune my priors and then I learn how my model works. And often that, that takes like months for a sophisticated mm. model. You learn, hey, what are unreasonable assumptions about this model? And you do that before you go and fit the model. And it's that process of learning how the model works and what's weird in it that is just like this this amazing trip. It's like you touch the stars. You're, you're like really mm. see God at that point because you fully understand some big complex model. I thoroughly encourage people to take that approach. You just learn so much from yourself. I'm glad you mentioned seeing God because before we move on, the OG risk matrix, as far as I'm concerned, is Pascal's wager. Right, right. <laughs> so, so there you go. And if, if you want to go back, anyone listening, and check out some of Pascal's research, how he was thinking about probability, how him and Fermat were thinking about probability at the time, really, really beautiful, in, in, incredible work. But... It's the 21st century now, and we've moved past all of that. It seems I'm excited to jump in and hear about what you're working on now at Schmidt Futures, Jim. Tell us a bit about what, what you're up to. Yeah, so my role at Schmidt Futures is pretty weird. I get to be first bits on the ground for programs. A program might take a couple of years to spin up, and I try to build programs that are going to have some outsized impact, especially, you know, Schmidt Futures, we're a philanthropic initiative that was co-founded by Eric and Wendy Schmidt. Eric used to um, be CEO of Google. And, you know, I think there's this 
insight from his experience at Google that finding people who are really exceptional and supporting them and challenging them can yield outsized impacts. And it's specifically not being too prescriptive in what they do, how they get there, but making sure that you're providing some combination of support and challenging them. So it's like, let's go and find really, really smart people who are going to do the thing that they're good at and help them get there. The important thing about this is that we don't have a very strong like cause prioritization lens. And a lot of people in philanthropy would they say like we work on X and we work on Y. The Schmidt Futures model is more the fit between the person and what they're doing matters so much that really let people who are exceptional decide what they should be working on. And we just provide the sort of support that we can. Yeah, my question, and maybe this is where you're going, is how, how you use your skills. What does a director of data science for these types of initiatives even look like? Yeah, so let me walk you through two initiatives. So there's one I spent the last couple of years on, and then there's one that I'm starting now. So a bit over two years ago, we were like, wouldn't it be great to get, if I'm if I'm perfectly honest, the my old boss, Dylan, he was like one of the first hires at what became Lyft. And he's a really nice, very well-intentioned guy. So he dropped out of college, went and helped start Lyft. He went back to college after a couple of years. And, and you know, that mindset of and how did he get the job at Lyft? Well, one of his neighbors or like school friends or something, I don't know what it was, was like founder, right? And mm. he saw in his friend who started Lyft, like, oh, people like me can start enormous, really impactful companies. And... And so he's like, oh, I can, I can do that. And that, as an Australian, that was like something really weird and old to me. I always thought like these people who start these big companies are like something else. They get like their geniuses or whatever. We'd call them tall poppies in Australia, I think. Yeah, yeah. Australians At least some of us down. would. Yep. Yeah, uh, they would like if you're an Australian and someone talks, says, hey, here's this cool thing I want to do, you would politely insult yourself as a way yep. of telling that person that they've... Self-deprecation is one of our superpowers. Yeah, it's, it's sick. I don't know if I'd go that far, but... It's absolutely poisonous, I think, it's a, as, a, as a mindset and it's something that Americans mm. are really good at. So Americans, like, they don't do that at all. They're like, oh, cool. Your, your crazy idea is wonderful. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go to the moon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, seriously, let's go to the moon, Jim. And so it's this question of like, hey, how could you create a program that would do two things and it's just like find a large number of really talented young people who you can hopefully convince at a key juncture in their lives just before they go to college that they should be having a career dedicated to, to service of others. And so how can we do that at the same time as leveling up people who miss out? You're always going to have people who miss out on a program. And so this program called Rise was created. Rise is you know, it's one of the world's largest opportunities in terms of like support. Each of the 100 global winners every year is eligible for over half a million dollars in support through their lives. It's also not just a prescriptive program. So for example, a Rhodes Scholarship, you go to Oxford for two years. If you win Rise, you get the sort of support that you need. And you know you would work out with the Rise team, like what sort of support you actually do need. And, and if you're going to be a social entrepreneur, that's very different to if you're going to be a member of parliament. But 
we would hope that we can provide the sorts of support to help you be your best self. Now, that's extremely expensive. And so it would be a shame if we only benefited winners. And so the entire point of Rise is can we attract a large number of applicants and make an application that both gets a good read on their skills, but also helps them start to change a mindset. And so we did it by working as a celebrated psychologist at Penn Wharton, Angela Duckworth. She helped us put together this kind of application process where people would, to apply, they go and do something. They work out a project that would take them roughly eight weeks. We kind of adjust for how much time they're likely to have if they're looking after siblings and whatnot, then we're not going to expect them to, say, to do the same sort of work as someone who's you know, got all the resources in the world. And they know what they're good at. And let's, so let's assess people at what they're good at. And you work on a project for eight weeks and we provide structure and support to you doing that. So there are, we have a Discord channel where all the kids can actually meet up the other dweebs like them. We've got like these online coaching sessions. We've got like all these other kind of like resources that people get and, and all these interesting mindset interventions that have been demonstrated in quite large studies to help people kind of think about themselves differently. And so it was just like, it's this fantastic program it, and applications are open until December 22. I'm not sure if this would be really for them, but if you know any 15, 17 year olds, they should definitely apply. Now, my role in that was helping to like really set early parameters. So like, who should we be looking for? What questions do yield information about people? What sort of information should we be collecting? And we did this incredible study that, and I, I'm allowed to call it incredible because like I wasn't, it, it's not my study. I kind of like <laughs> hopefully inspired a bit of it, but, but really like the team working on it is just a really, really amazing team. The basic idea is, hey, if you, let's go to, to design an application process, let's start with a population for whom we know there are outliers in a quote-unquote ground truth sense. Let's then send them down a couple of different application paths and check to see whether that those application paths are able to identify these people who we already knew were outliers. And so what we did, we recruited 16 classrooms around the world in gifted and talented schools or programs and took a class in each of them where the teacher had been working with the kids for at least a year and the kids all knew each other pretty well. We then sat down with all those teachers and said, hey, can you like score your kids? And we've built this rubric. Can you score your kids on you know, intelligence, empathy, integrity, perseverance? And the other ones spike, so where they had like some calling and boostability. And also creativity, which can code for intelligence in women in some cultures. And we then asked all the kids in those classes, hey, can you nominate the top three most quote-unquote like empathetic kids or top three kids with the highest integrity or whatever it is? Now, we knew that the people were kind of talking about the same constructs because when the kids, when one child was ranked highly by one person for integrity, they were much more likely to be ranked highly by other kids in the same classroom. When you looked at what the classmates were saying about who the outliers were, those outliers were much more likely to be identified as high scoring by the teacher as well. And so we're probably talking about something that at least is shared in people's minds. It doesn't necessarily yeah, mean, I mean that it was. This is really interesting. The fact if we're trying to talk about ground truth, the fact that we're getting ideas from different people and a sense of shared reality, I think is actually 
incredibly important if we're to use the term ground truth, which I'm uncomfortable with, but I'm okay for the purposes of this conversation. But the fact of sourcing it, which essentially will, you know, there's an argument, we need to look at the details, but this will essentially remove certain types of measurement, error, systematic bias, these these types of stuff as well, right? So crowdsourcing. Have you come across the jingle jangle fallacy? No, I haven't. I'd love to hear about a new fallacy. Wow. I thought I knew them all. In psychometrics, that you've got my jingle jangle. That's the Hugo fallacy. Sorry, go on. Uh, I forget the which one's a jingle and which one's a jangle fallacy, but it's basically that you might have two similar sounding terms that actually describe very different constructs. Or you might have different terms. For example, empathy and integrity. We know, I describe that to you as, you, and you can just, if I ask you, hey, what is integrity? Then you've got an answer. And then I ask you, what is empathy? And you've got an answer. And those things are not the same. And then you go to the data and you look at people who've been graded on empathy and integrity and there are not two independent factors. They're like a single single correlated, very, very, very correlated thing. And in fact, what we found was that although people were agreeing on who the outliers were, they weren't agreeing on like who literally has high stability or who has high empathy because there are really only two or three dimensions and they roughly correlate to are you a pretty good student and do you have some kind of grit, street smarts type stuff. Okay, that makes sense. Hugo's waving his eyebrows at me for those not watching the video. Maybe I'm waving my eyebrows at him. Yeah, so, so, and those two factors explain most of the variation that we saw in the, in, I take the point seriously, it's not ground truth data, it's like some, some hopefully fairly validate scores. Can I just ask, there is one other thing though, When and we'll come back to this when talking about data for good. I, I just wonder like terms like integrity and empathy, maybe they have pretty like Western connotations to how they're interpreted. Perhaps Like if we, if you go and do something like this in Nigeria, for example, and we're using terms that we, we validate and that we think like, what are the dangers associated with that? And how do you include stakeholders? And feel free to say, let's come back to this later. But I... I I think that's important. Yeah, so um, we did this original study in, let me just see if I've got the countries right, in Brazil, Kenya, UK, Hong Kong. I think there might have been, not sure if we did the Vietnamese class, but possibly US and Mexico. And what we found was this effect of there being very few factors that describe most of the things and that people agreeing on who was exemplary, more or less held in all the countries. So we allowed the um, parameters to vary by classroom, but they didn't vary by very much. But does ask, my question is, does asking the same questions in different countries even make sense? Or is there some sort of colonial bias there? Yeah. And we actually found, I remember there was one school, I think it was in Zambia, and the teachers' rankings were all the same. Um, so for mm. empathy and integrity, it's like, oh, and that, Basically, the teacher's like, mm, I've got a large class, 45 kids. I probably don't know them very well, so I'm going to look at the grade book mm. and score. And so it's like, uh, well, I don't know if that data is quite as, as good because, like, let's think about education differently. And, mm-hmm. you know, comparing that to, like, a school in, I think the other school, where the school in New York that was Midtown. It's like a very kind of hippy dippy sort of school where the teachers get to know their students very well. And, and like, I just don't know if, we're measuring the same thing. Yeah, okay. Which, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. It just It's like, 
you know, no, it's very worthy of consideration. And it, I, I think it comes back to uncertainty around decision-making. It, it, these types of, when we know that it may not work the same way, or we may be putting our own biases onto different cultures, then when decisions are made, incorporating as much from the different stakeholders as possible and make, and, and co-evolving and co-making those decisions, and, and I think. Well, the interesting thing that we learned from this is that we then interviewed as many of those kids. I think it ended up being 110 or 112 of the kids with panel interviews that were structured. So they would interdate the interviews. They, they all use the same questions. They could gauge answers across different students and how they related to each other. They, we recorded all of the interviewer scores on every attribute individually. So the interviewers would all do the interview and then they would record their score and then they would come together at the end and say, oh, so what do we think? And they would kind of negotiate a group score, a panel score. And what we basically learned from that was that they didn't do especially well at pulling out the outliers. And when we broke, when we really decomposed that error, so who were they making the mistakes for? We found that it was the kids in the, so we also had biographical data on the kids who were being interviewed. And there were, and we looked at one dimension in particular that really stood out to us that was household income. And the kids in the richest 20% of households were systematically, for almost all the attributes, being given scores that were higher than average by the interviewers relative to what the peers and, and teachers scored them wow. as. And in the kind of lower middle class, so income quintiles two and three, quite a large underestimate. When we went to the interviewers and told them this, they were like, okay, tell me who, tell me who, and I'll tell you about the interview. And we would give them, and they're like, oh, that person didn't answer the questions. They, they actually didn't interview very well. And it, it is really, really interesting because, you know, I think this is, we talk about a lot. I don't think we've got the sort of data that we're completely convinced that it's, it's, you know, the whole picture yet. But that sort of polish is really important, answering in an interview, answering a question properly. So just to clarify, it was the wealthier children who did better. Right, they had nice structure, no, smart, what was it, what was it called, uh, like a star, you know, situation, task, action, result, sort of interview responses. They were, they were very, pol like, great. And the interviewers systematically gave them higher scores than the peers and, and teachers. Right. And the kids in lower middle income were systematically penalized. The kids at the bottom uh, were on par. Okay. Which is really interesting. And I think, like, you know, through my career, I've been pretty motivated by, like, fairness. I, I am kind of... I get quite angry at systems that are very unfair. Well, you're one of my friends who's a, like a, a man of meritocracy, which I have my own challenges with. And this is probably isn't the place for it, but that's a, a conversation over many, many more beers in a Brooklyn bar one day. This is very important to, um, to figure out. Yeah, that's really, really important information. It means, you know, the model I've got in my mind of identifying people for support, if we think about, for example, applications for universities or whatnot. You know, it's known in Australia, where we're both from, that if you get 95 out of 100 and as your ATAR score and then go into a university and do a degree, let's take all the kids who got 95 and then let's track how many of them drop out and how many of them get Fs and how many of them get As and whatnot. There are some great data that shows that if you went to like 
a good private school, you've got a higher dropout rate and a higher rate of failure and all that sort of stuff than the kids who went to the selective state schools. And the selective state schools have, uh, sorry, and the regular state schools, the regular government schools that aren't as resourced, the kids who get 95 of those schools that go on to the same courses have lower rates of dropout and lower rates mm. of failure. Now, what's going on? Well, it's measurement error. This is always measurement error. So we're trying to use a level threshold, in this case, like some test score or some assessment in an interview as a way of judging trajectory. And trajectory is a function of how much input you've been given. If people have made a huge set of investments in you and you meet the threshold, and I'm comparing you against someone who's had no investment and they almost meet the threshold, well, who should I bet on? What's the kid with no investment? They got there with almost nothing. Mm -hmm. If you've had like a huge set of investments in you and you've just met the threshold, like that's your ROI. This really motivates like what sort of information should we, we be using when we are like trying to assess people for these sorts of opportunities, we want to look at what sort of investments have been made and what sort of opportunities people had for growth and also what's, how they score in your interviews and your, all those sorts of things. Now, the other side of that, the flip side, which is really, really important, is investments matter. Like if you have an early childhood, a really great early childhood education, you're way more likely to do good things in the world. It's a huge source of inequality that some people don't receive great early childhood education. And if we are not adjusting, like, so although we want to be adjusting for exposure to opportunity, the exposure to opportunity also matters because you have got more of the building blocks. And so this is like really challenging ethical decision of like, which of those things truly matter to someone's potential and which of those things are simply training for the test. I think... This dovetails really nicely in what I'd like to, and I, I think you'd like to discuss next, the idea of challenging ethical decisions and what data for good actually is and how we can responsibly approach it. So as we've discussed, you've done a huge amount of work in the data for good space, as has your wife, Sue, as well, across a lot of different different dimensions. And maybe another conversation, I'm very interested in thinking through what having a partner who works in a similar space and who you know you talk about these things with um but I'd I'd like to have a conversation about responsible data for good and to kind of set the seed this is something I'll include in the show notes Rachel Thomas recently wrote a blog post on her and Jeremy's fast.ai blog called doing data science for social good responsibly and I'll I'll actually set the seed by reading a tweet that she wrote a couple of years ago, which is included in this post. Rachel wrote, data for good is an imprecise term that says little about who we serve, the tools used, or the goals. Being more precise can help us be more accountable and have greater positive impact. And she was actually, she shared a, a, a screenshot and was referencing a presentation by uh, Sarah Hooker at the Data Institute um, in San Francisco at, at their lunch seminar. So perhaps we could use that as a launching pad for thinking about accountability and transparency, thinking about including the most impacted people in the conversations, recognizing their values may be different from those of nonprofits or academic stakeholders. And also in these types of things, what it means to take data privacy seriously. Now, I've just done the worst thing an interviewer can possibly do, which is throw out maybe five incredibly meaty issues, but I'd love for you to pick 
what resonates with you and maybe we can have a conversation around these ideas. And I just want to state, of course, this is something we could talk about for five hours in itself. And I'd love to do that at, uh, downstream at some point. But at the moment, I think it's important to do this after the conversation we've had. Totally. And I encourage any listener to go and read the pieces. It's, of course, very important. And the reason that Hugo has included it, I've read it, I think, three or four times now. And I have like a very mixed response to it. And I'm not sure whether it's because it reminds me of some less than friendly discussions I've had with people or whether it's, you know, whether I'm interpreting it wrong. It is, of course, like highlighting some incredibly important issues. Like if you are not taking data privacy incredibly seriously, then you're probably not doing data science social good. If you're not like building, if you don't have like the end user in mind and, and protecting them, then you're not doing data science for good. The challenge I think here is that, and this is a very, very, very important point here, which is that there, especially when we're working in like development contexts or, you know, where there are groups who might significantly miss out on finance or whatever, you need to, if they're not represented, in your decision-making, in your user research, in your rollout plan and in your research, you are doing a bad job. I've seen it done really well very infrequently. I should say, one of the things I have kind of disagreed with in that article are the, the pieces of data science social good work that do nothing and there might be like greenwashing or whatever. I think there's that I, don't, I have a lot of time for young people trying to do good things and I'm not going to, like I've done those, I think most people have worked on projects that didn't really do very much and that's okay and I don't think we ever should tell them they're wasting their time because often that's like human capital development, often it's network development, like it's important stuff. I agree with those the- those examples. I, I think that is slightly straw manny and in, in the sense that those examples, sure, but I, I think examples of greenwashing and ethics washing are when big tech companies hire an, an ethics owner, right? And set them impossible OKRs or, or, or KPIs where not a lot is actually done. And that's endemic in in tech in, in general. So I think you're absolutely right, but I think the concern is incredibly important. Yeah, and I think the, the right person to impose... So the way I've seen it done best is when the person who is leading the project is like, wouldn't it be interesting to understand what sort of model can we build and who is hurt by it? And they treat that as a primary research objective and they are curious because they're not just trying to demonstrate success. We do have a culture of showing how my AUC increases and aren't I smart. I think it's much more important to see the points where your model breaks or where your analysis is wrong because it makes for not only a much better quality piece of analysis or, or product, whatever you're building, but also it's more interesting and more fun. And it's also important to think who, who your key stakeholders are. So I'll give an example from another industry, which I think is uncontroversial, which is civil engineering, okay? So bridges and buildings need to be built. There are codes and all of these things, which checklists as well, which need to be built so they don't fall down. If they fall down, people die. Civil engineers are incredibly culpable there, right? Now, Let's take a tech company, any tech company that does 
makes their money from online advertising, let's say. In this particular case, I don't want to pick on Facebook or or, or whatever. Having said, I don't say I don't want to pick on Facebook, but the idea that who are the stakeholders for said company? A lot of the time, the real stakeholders are the customers who are buying the ads, and the users, user consumers who use social network or search or streaming or whatever it is, or like looking at photos or like, I don't know who that would be. These things, what happens to them are probably considered at best negative externalities as opposed to actual stakeholders. So is it important to consider everyone who's impacted as actual stakeholders and be responsible to them? Yeah, it goes back to the causality conversation. And, you know, Sherry Mitchell's done a whole bunch of work on how do you think about both causal inference and fairness and, you know, algorithmic fairness and those sorts of things as one, because if you're not thinking about causality in, in context of how your systems might hurt people, then you know, you're not doing it right. Yep. And check out Shira Mitchell. She's a Blue Rose. And I'm actually going to have her on the podcast. I actually spoke with her a couple of days ago. Amazing. She's great. And I need to thank you once again for introducing me to Shira at a lovely dinner party you hosted in Park Slope a couple of years ago. Excellent. Okay. I think there are several prompts. I, how should the general populace think about accountability and transparency in, in these situations? So why should... We trust Schmidt Futures or Chance Zuckerberg Initiative or in, anything along those lines to be to be doing. Like you say, we're doing data, data for good, but how, how? What type of conversation between the public and in democracy should happen between philanthropy, which has a lot of capital behind it, and and the democratic process and the citizenry? I don't think there's really because like it's not just philanthropy and it's not just big tech. You're giving away your data to like your restaurant and uh, one of those restaurants like leaked a database of of credit cards and that sort of stuff. like it just happens all the time i think the most important thing is that people like become aware of what sort of things they what are, what is a standard end user agreement uh what is this what does gdpr give me because everyone's using gdpr as a standard for their own data collections now and you know all the other types of protections education has a whole bunch of um, protections with them with those so I, th- I just think you need to educate yourself and tell people about it. And there are lots of great videos on this stuff. I just don't think it is likely because no one is incentivized to create the sorts of accountability mechanisms that we have with government, with big technology companies, with philanthropy, with small businesses, like to, I'm still here. Sorry, the thing is, I just don't think we'll ever see accountability mechanisms that are not uh, driven by people asking for Yeah, and also I I do want to clarify that I don't necessarily think, I I framed it as how to include people in the democratic process. I I, I do think we're seeing deep fundamental flaws in the way democratic processes are implemented now. In the past couple of years, we have had what is arguably a total failure of leadership classes in the West and other places, but you know, where, where you and I are as well. So wondering whether, you know, regulation is important, establishing norms in an industry is also important, but whether how much we want governments to know about our data as opposed to corporations, it isn't even clear what this, what, what this trade-off, trade-off is, right? I was just talking, I've got quite a few friends in the political data world, and one of the things that you know about or everyone knows about in the US is that you've got these voter files and they're all merged with credit card, like your credit com- card company has sold your data. Your, you know, if you went to a big and wide, a 
was it tall and wide or whatever those stores are for for like unusually shaped men uh, if you went to one of those stores like they have sold your data and it's in some database somewhere they know how much dog food you buy well i shop at a place called high and mighty and i used to buy shoes at a place called bigfoot so there you go because i'm size 17. so if you're in the us then those companies would have sold your data to a data broker who would have merged onto a big file that has like i don't know eight thousand columns and that is merged with the voter file and it's sold to anyone who will pay and you can buy, and they use that to train machine learning models to work out who to target this is like a, a well-known thing mm. all sides of politics uses these sorts of methods one of the really interesting things that gdpr is doing in europe is because the transferring of those data is like far more challenging unless you give you know active informed consent and so in the political world they can't they don't have access to that granular data and so the the kind of low level targeting is not easy for, to, for them to do and it's like actually uh change the the dynamics of the um of political operations there which is really yeah. fascinating and and so I, it is you know we're already seeing gdpr being because it's like the is a huge set of policies i don't think anyone understands it fully but because it's so huge everyone needs everyone's like gdpr compliant even in countries where they don't have to be gdpr compliant and uh, that's probably going to mean that we'll see an increase in, in quality. And so, like, I'm confident that that actually sets a tone and we'll probably see an increase in, in privacy. To be honest, like, at the, at the other side, like, I really like some of the things that we've gotten from, like, a privacy. Like, we, we can't pretend that it hasn't had some benefits as well. You know, I, if I jump on Instagram, the advertising is so good. I just enrolled my son in an after-school program that was perfectly targeted to me. And is that kind of sick? Yeah, but it's like I do benefit from it somehow. And Look, so, I, and so I, same thing with like... I mean, what we need to talk about is like a, a high multi-dimensional cost-benefit analysis and not reductive projections down to yay or nay. And I do think... You know, how many of these conversations happen on... That's one of the reasons I, I'm starting podcasting again, man. I'm sick of bloody the 180 character reduction to yes or no, to good or bad, to burn or raise, you know. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to discuss this with you as uh, as well, because of the work you've been doing. And speaking about can Facebook I, can ads... I, can I, sorry, can I, can I say, because I'm not sure if we're going to get the opportunity to talk about it in detail, but I think there is this one thing that that piece you said through to me made me think and it is you know the, the most scarce resource in the world is entrepreneurial energy if you see you, you know yourself when you have owned a project and you love it you are like 100 times as productive as when you are disempowered or poorly incentivized or, or whatever like entrepreneurial energy is worth its weight in gold and you have skin and in the game yeah, I don't want to get too like wanna... Nassim Taleb, right? Because he's got his own right, got skin, yeah. issues. But he's like entrepreneurs over VCs. That's for another conversation right. as well, by the way. But you, so at the same time, people have feelings, and there's this thing that I've seen time and time again, which is like you get someone who's got a ton of energy, they're working on it really hard, and then someone makes a bad faith comment about the work, or sometimes even a good faith comment about the work, and it just snuffs it out. 
and and can really decrease the amount of good. I think we need to find constructive ways of making sure that people do high quality data science social good. Now, in, in particular, mm. I think there are terms like at once it is critically important that if you if you're doing a large data science project that you have actively sourced an advisory panel who's going to be is it red team what's it called like the team who like challenges you to sign off on your plan to make sure that mm-hmm. they're representing people you should be talking to your end customer end customers and end users to really understand them. like you should be on the ground and doing all that stuff to really make sure you're solving the problem like nope. those things worth taking incredibly seriously at the same time there are people out there who know that they can win an argument in a meeting by saying uh, you're not taking x group seriously they're not represented at the table and it can be a bad faith challenge of your work and it can and it can snuff out that entrepreneurial spark that that is often driving good and so i just want to be like really really careful that we don't be overly critical of people who are trying to do good and said we support them right, and help them ask the right questions rather than accusing them of racism or sexism yeah, or those sorts of things because it's like... I was just it, going to say, it's, also it's really to have good faith conversations and that's what I'm interested in here. You and I agree on a bunch of stuff, we disagree on a bunch of stuff, but there's a certain base level of good faithness and respect for another human here. I do right. also want to acknowledge, though, you and I are both white males from a certain class in Australia who've been given a bunch, have lived in New York City, worked in certain industries, that, that type of stuff. And I do want to make a commitment to... I don't even know who the listenership's going to be of this, this podcast yet, but I do want to make a, a good faith commitment to have as many people from as many diverse backgrounds on this show to talk about these issues because I think these conversations are incredibly important. You and I have posed more questions than we've answered. We've probably missed a lot. I would ask listeners that if, you know, you disagree with things we've said or think we've missed things and are frustrated, let us know, but please do it in a good faith manner as, as well, particularly if on, on social media because we do want to engage. Um, well, I definitely do and I get the distinct impression you do as well, Jim. Yeah, you know, and I think this comes, you know, this... You, know, you and I were introduced by a common friend, what, six years ago or so. Yep. And this project that I'm working on at the moment, you know, what we're trying to do is, you know, what we learned with Rise was that, you know, it is possible to find some really exceptional people who might not go discovered and change their careers and change the, uh, change the incentives for a lot of people so they might, like, go and consider a career in the service of others. The program that I'm booting up at the moment, which is, it kind of zooms forward 20 years. And what do you do with those people who are roughly around our age, Hugo? I think we're within a few years of each other. Late 30s. Sure. Mid to late 30s. And so, so this Early question of like, to... <laughs> I'm 35, so. Okay. But how do you intervene to make sure that exceptionally capable big-hearted people are working, actually having impact. I think there are many, many, many people in the world. They might be an impactful-oriented person just like in the wrong role or mm. at the wrong firm or employer or maybe even wrong team, the right employer. Maybe there is, but maybe they're like, I don't know, optimizing click-through rates of dog food or something, which is like fine. 
it's benign, it's okay, but that person could be doing something much, much better. And so what we are building is a program to really help with those top executives, operations people, tech people, data people, product people, and so on, to make sure that they understand what an impactful career looks like and they can get into that role, especially these people who are like six months, two years out from that, they know they've got something, they, they know they're very capable and they're, they're pondering what that really high impact switch is. Hands down. And so, and so if, if we want to really tackle um, who's got access to those super big levers where they can do a huge amount of good, um, it's about redistributing networks. And, Agreed. and, you know, I, I think networks are important because, like, people hire through networks. They become friends through networks and whatnot because we can't describe what we want in a job ad. A CV and an interview cannot capture who I'd we are. I'd also argue that we, are, we still develop band-level groups within large-scale societies in a variety yeah, of ways. Absolutely. And I do think... You've made a key point. I think there are all these conversations around equality of opportunity in America in particular and how the hell, like what an idea. How do you have equality of opportunity when there's so much network nepotism for one and yeah. so much intergenerational wealth transfer on another? I mean, it's all well and good to say equality of opportunity, but how do you operationalize it or deploy it when the system isn't only against it, but it's a totally different frame of frame of living? In a lot of ways, look. So, I think a lot of it is about like describing the rules of the game. Mm. A lot of people don't know the rules of the game, and it works against them. And simply giving people like, if you learn that, hey, the people who've all made it, they met their sponsor by working on a political campaign, and that's like, hey, do it. And that's like a really important message that like. That's well known in some communities and not at all known in others. Yeah, and like my armchair anarchist might come out slightly now, but I mean, a lot of people in positions of power have literally vested interests Absolutely. to not let the rules of the game be known. I want to wrap up now. I'd, I'd like to say it does sound like incredible work you're doing. I would love to hear more in future about how philanthropy can be kept accountable in particular. It sounds like good work, but I'd love to know more about like who decides what's done and then who decides who decides as well. I think these are really important questions in terms of transparency and, and accountability. But thank you for having just a candid conversation around these things. And I do want to say to our listeners, please reach out with, with thoughts, inspirations, critiques. Um, I'm sure we've missed out a, a huge amount um, and perhaps said things that are incorrect as well. And I'd love for those to be brought to our, our attention. So Jim, We'll probably have a listenership who are very interested in data. If they made it this this far through the conversation, they're clearly very, very interested in in data. I'm wondering if you have a, a call to action, something that you think you'd like to see people do more in in the space, or what people can can do. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, the thing I tell all young data scientists is to spend some of the time that you're devoting to tools, and instead devote it to reading research and, and starting to understand research problems and how, how really smart researchers have tackled difficult research problems. I think that's like, if you're developing your career as a data scientist, that is like a superpower. Great. And are there any, would it be domain expertise stuff, or are there any research papers that you think everyone should read? There are hundreds. Just start with mostly harmless econometrics or mastering metrics. I think Great. Go, go and read one of those books, and you'll, um, 
your life will be better. Fantastic. And we'll include links to those in, in the show notes as well. Cool. Hugo, great speaking. Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. You can follow us on Twitter at Vanishing Gradients Pod or check out our website, vanishinggradients.com. Look forward to having you join us in the next episode. <laughs>